Today we enter into the final section in the letter to the Corinthians about how they are to use their gifts in the life of the gathered church, of when they meet on an ongoing and regular basis. That's what chapters 12 to 14 are all about. And that might sound like it's super straightforward when you hear it first, but we already know, of course, that the Corinthians were masters of contention. They had this knack. They were highly proficient in not only letting sin tear them apart, they were really good at that, but also even of taking good things, so good gifts, and turning those things into something that is divisive. It seems from what Paul is describing and implying that the regular gatherings had become really chaotic. It seems like the gatherings were far more about serving their own individual needs rather than reflected the intended purpose of their gathering together as a whole. And so Paul, in effect, says, Hey, Corinthian church, this is not how it is meant to be. I think it's a bit like when in orchestra, just before a performance, all the musicians are, are warming up and everyone's just doing their own thing, warming themselves up, warming their instruments up, and it can sound pretty noisy, pretty random. But then the conductor comes up the front, taps the baton, and all of the notes are brought together in harmony in a crescendo. Paul's bringing the threads together, saying to the Corinthians, you gather not merely as a hodgepodge of individuals, but as the body. You are unified in Christ, yet not uniform in gifting. That was chapter 12. He says the driving way that you to express those gifts is in love, not as an expression of status, not as a mark of authenticity, not as an indicator of superiority, but in love. That was chapter 13. And now it's like he says to them, so let's see what that looks like in practice, tackling the example of tongues. That's chapter 14. Now, we've already seen that this gift of tongues is causing really serious division in the life of the church. And so Paul takes it as a case study. In fact, this is a live issue and says, basically, you are all obsessed with this gift. But let me show you, in recognition that there is one body, a diversity of gifts, and the way is love, that tongues is actually not the bee's knees and prophecy is even better. So verse 1 of chapter 14. Follow the way of love and eagerly desires the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Now, it's really important, of course, to, to try and understand what Paul means by prophecy and tongues, because when we hear those terms, we can overlay and bring along all sorts of ideas about what we think Paul means, which may or may not have any bearing of the reality in the original context. And so let's take those two terms. So first tongues, then prophecy. So when it comes to tongues, in the New Testament, there are two different gifts mentioned in the New Testament. The first is a supernatural gift of a type of ecstatic speech that is unrecognisable to others unless someone has the gift of interpretation. It's type, a type of private love language, which is orientated not to others, but to God. That's glossolalia. 
The second way that tongues are spoken about in the New Testament is also a supernatural gift, but of a known language that, whilst not spoken by the person previously, is given to them as a gift, and they can speak it, and it's understood by those for whom it is the language. And so you might recall, we read about that in Acts on the day of Pentecost, when people heard the gospel being people from all nations gathered in Jerusalem that day, people heard the gospel being spoken and proclaimed miraculously in their own tongue. That's xenoglossolalia. And whilst we're not sure which of those two gifts Paul is speaking about here, he's likely addressing the first one of a type of ecstatic speech that is not understood by others. Prophecy, on the other hand, is not a private speaking to God, but a public speaking to God's people. Now, when you hear prophecy, you might think of a supernatural foretelling of the future, but that's actually not normally how prophecy is spoken about in the New Testament. It's actually not normally how it's spoken in the Old Testament either. But the gift of prophecy in the New Testament is more a supernatural insight into God's Word and an applying of it in the current context in which it's being spoken. So encouraging, consoling, rebuking and challenging God's people. Whilst in the Old Testament we hear of prophets and the prophets spoke as the word of the Lord, and so that means you either got to take it or leave it. In the New Testament, the way that prophecy is manifested is, is a bit different. It was far more common. Paul says everyone should pray for, pray for that gift. And so he goes on to even instruct that it wasn't necessarily the word of the Lord, but all that they heard should be weighed up and sifted through before it was accepted. So that was the role of prophecy. Prophecy and tongues. The Corinthians are fixated with the gift of tongues, but Paul wants them to pursue prophecy. Why? Let's have a look. Verse 4. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. So that's the big idea. Paul wants them to understand the purpose of their gifts. Gifts are not for their self-indulgence, because it's what I enjoy. Gifts are not for their self-expression, because it's important to who I am. Gifts are not for self-promotion, because I think I'm rather important. Gifts are from God for the building up of God's church. And as Paul works through the example of where tongues fits in all of that, I think we see three principles of what it looks like to build up God's church when we gather. So, you know, chaotic speaking of tongues might not be an issue for us here, but we see three principles that actually do instruct us on how we use our gifts, the building up of of God's church. And really, we could almost treat these like three criteria that help us when we gather to test if we're using our gifts for God's intended purposes to build up God's church. So three principles, all that we do when we gather should foster understanding, participation and belief if we seek to build up God's church. So first, we help build up God's church by fostering understanding. Now, Paul's already established the reason why prophecy should be sought over tongues. So you recall, he says, for whilst tongues edifies oneself, it builds up oneself, prophesy edifies 
the church. So it's directed outwardly. And in verse 6, he unpacks this a bit more. So verse 6, he says, Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation? That's not sorry, new knowledge, but revelation of the gospel, or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction. So the logic is crystal clear. If the point is when we gather to build the body up, what possible effect will a gift have if no one can understand what you're saying? Now, Paul really wants them to get this connection. It's a big challenge for them. So he uses three images to make his point in verses 7 through 11. So verse 7 of the instruments, the images of random noise from an instrument, he says, does not make for a recognisable song. Uh, verse 8 about the trumpet call. It says an obscured trumpet sounding will not result in a clear call to action. So people will not know they should retreat or go into battle. And verse 11, with language, it says words that cannot be grasped make us foreigners to one another. Paul says, Corinthians, do you get it? Unless there is someone to interpret your words, your building up of the church is about as effective as speaking words into a headwind. Like scrambled notes, people will not understand you. Like a muted trumpet, they will not know how to respond. Like an unknown language, they will feel like outsiders in the very place meant to be home. They've got to stop prioritising their gifts based on their own inward experience and start expressing their gifts for the outward building up of God's church. That's the measure. Note that Paul isn't just sort of anti-tongues. He said he himself has that gift. He longs for people to have that gift. He even goes on to make provisions that if, if tongues are to be spoken in gatherings, it can be done only if there's someone to interpret, and his preference is that we've done in smaller gatherings and, and private settings, it seems. Not something that happens in the context of, of the larger whole. He says, in the context of the church, I would much prefer you speak five intelligible words than 10,000 words in an unrecognisable tongue. Many years ago now, Patrice and I, we were trying to find a church on Christmas Eve in Italy. And as we're roaming around trying to find a church, you think that would be pretty easy, wouldn't you, in Italy, Christmas Eve, we somehow ended up in a French-speaking service in Rome at midnight. That's where we landed. Now, when we came into the service, we were actually late because we had trouble finding it. At first, it was incredibly beautiful hearing people speaking a, a language that was totally foreign to us, yet at the same time know that we were one in Christ. It was amazing. But of course, it didn't take long before we were totally confused. We might have been able to recognise a word here or there because it had a similar form to that in English or because we kind of knew roughly where in the service we were. But by and large, we were clueless. We couldn't respond to the prayers. We couldn't join in the song. We couldn't understand the sermon. Now, of course, we were tourists. We didn't expect just because we rocked up at midnight on Christmas Eve in a French-speaking church in Rome that they should switch to English or anything like that for us. But it was a totally disorientating experience. It sounded beautiful, 
but the words couldn't take effect. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that that was your, that was your experience, not just when you travelled overseas, but actually as week in, week out, as you gathered with God's people in your local church, you had no idea what was going on. Paul's point to the Corinthians, because it seems this is exactly the case for them, you might think this is impressive, but you are not the point. How is this possibly building up the church if no one understands? And of course, if we take that same principle that the understanding helps build up the body, it's right to examine ourselves and ask both, is there anything about our gatherings that impede understanding? Is there anything that we're not doing that would aid understanding? In recent years, as a church especially, we've tried to really consider those questions intentionally. And so through language, it's been great. I feel we're just beginning the work of, of, of translations and helping people understand some of the teaching in, in a couple other key languages. Through resources, it's really quite incredible to see the way in which some Bart's kids try to help kids of all ages understand God's Word. Through music, it's phenomenal to see some Bart's care helps those with dementia by using music so that people can join in praise. Through Vision 2025, with many of the accessibility goals that are being developed, we see them all working to help build up God's church, including those with additional needs. See, the picture is glorious. When we, when we gather, we want to deploy our gifts in every way imaginable, not for our own spiritual building up, personally, but for the building up of God's church. Second, we help build up God's church through fostering participation. Uh, one of the reasons it seems that the Corinthians place such an emphasis on tongues was not only an emphasis likely on their own personal spiritual experience, but because they seem to have conflated the spiritual importance of a gift with how otherworldly that gift appeared and felt. And so the gift of prophecy, of someone speaking, that would have looked, you know, might have looked pretty ordinary, pretty ho-hum, but the gift of tongues, wow, that looks really super spiritual and extraordinary. So they've, they've elevated and deprecated the other. But Paul says there's a real problem with that because verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. When Paul refers to his spirit here, that could actually mean a whole number of things. But what is clear is that Paul is correcting any notion that suggests that one type of activity, especially that which disengages the mind, is superior to the other. Uh, often in Christianity, people can make all sorts of strange distinctions about what is truly spiritual in the life of the gathered church. Whilst some people on one end can be really wary about any emotional expression, others falsely equate genuine spiritual expression as only that which is spontaneous and, and seemingly heart-led. But no, Paul just won't buy into this. He doesn't accept that premise. He says, praying with his spirit, yes, and also his understanding. 
Singing with the Spirit, yes, and also with his understanding. Paul's giving an image, he's delighting in God, but also fully complemented by his mental faculties. And in fact, it's a must. If the Corinthians seek an individual, euphoric type of spiritual experience when they gather, they're not only going to end up mirroring some of the so-called spiritual practice of the pagans of the time that chased those experiences, but it's also going to have no positive effect in the building up of God's church. So Paul time and time again explains why ordering of our gathered life together, it not only ensures the full participation of the body, but it's actually in itself also a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So verse 16. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the Spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving since they do not know what you are saying? So hear what Paul is saying. It is very practical. If people are all just carrying on with their own individual, private, personal expression then not only will people not be able to understand what you're saying, but how then can they possibly participate as the body as they are meant to? Regularly, as part of our services here at St Barnes, there are opportunities for us to stand and sing and speak together. Of course, they're not the only ways that we participate. There's there's hundreds of ways, uh, just even on a Sunday, in which people participate. But when it comes to saying things together or even in singing together, that can be a bit strange for some people and seem a bit odd. But it's actually an ancient and, and beautiful way in which we participate together. And so when we pray and when we respond, Amen, we are together as a body agreeing with the prayer. When we affirm the creed, We are together as a body publicly declaring what we believe. When we confess our sins, we're together as a body recognising our need for forgiveness and proclaiming our conviction that it's only in the Lord Jesus that we find that need met. I think one of the reasons why saying words together and responding in this way and even singing together can seem so strange at times, is that not only actually are there very few places in our normal life and society when we will do that sort of thing, but I think also at a deeper level, it kind of rubs up against our individualistic culture. It rubs up against it as our our voices, whilst many, are joined in one in response to the goodness of our God. When we use our gifts in a way that enables the body to participate, we're not only correcting our selfish instincts, but we're proclaiming a countercultural way of being loving community. Throughout COVID, in different times and places, lots of people have commented to me that one of the things that they have really missed is being able to sing with others. In fact, that's the experience right now in many places. They can't sing, they can't gather as God's people. And so many people have said that what they've really missed about singing together is not necessarily how beautiful everyone's voices sound, but that when they hear one another sing in unison, proclaiming the same words and truth of who God is, that they are spurred on in keeping following Jesus 
every day of their lives. It spurs them on. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, use your gifts in the building up of the church means using your gifts in a way that helps others participate. We see that in so many ways. So thankful. That's what our our welcomers do to ensure people are comfortable and feel at home. That's what our our tech people do to ensure that people can hear properly and, and see the words. That's what our bus drivers do, ensuring people who would otherwise be unable to gather can actually gather. We don't see serving at St. Bart's as some sort of obligation or filling a gap. But, but beautifully enabling people to participate in the building up of God's church. Finally, we help build up God's church through fostering belief. So verse 22. Tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. Now, when you first hear that, you think this sounds a bit tricky. This sounds like a bit of a riddle. And you can think, actually, that that seems strange, isn't it? The actual opposite. Shouldn't tongues be for the believer and prophecy for the unbeliever? But the key to understanding what Paul is saying is actually by the quote from Isaiah in verse 21. So have a look with me at verse 21. In the law it is written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So, of course, Isaiah is a book of the Old Testament about the prophet of God, Isaiah, whose job was to warn the people that God's judgment was coming and that God's judgment was coming in the form of an invading army. Isaiah kept on warning Jerusalem to turn back to God to live their lives in according with the way that the Lord had required of them. But even though Isaiah spoke plainly, his words were like nonsense to them. And so they ignored it. And so they were told, having ignored the warning of God via Isaiah, that when they hear an unfamiliar language in their own land, it will be a sign that the conquering army has come and God's judgment has fallen. So, totally ironically, Isaiah's words that could be clearly understood were ignored, but the unknown language of the invading army would be understood as judgment. Paul is saying, Corinthians, are you not considering those who do not yet believe, yet they gather with you? When you all insist on speaking languages that visitors cannot understand, it is not a sign of the Spirit as you think it may be to them, but it's actually a sign of judgment of their unbelief. Unable to understand your words, how can they hear the gospel and respond? He's saying your fixation with this gift, with no regard for others, has become a stumbling block to belief. They will hear much, understand little, and verse 23, simply conclude that you're out of your minds. It's the opposite of what it should be. It's the opposite of the day of Pentecost when people gathered from every nation. When the Holy Spirit came, people heard the wonders of God being declared in their own language. That's what Paul longs for the Corinthians. Not that they would change the message of the gospel, 
but that nothing they would do would get in the way of proclaiming the gospel. I love that Paul assumes that when they gather, there will be people who don't yet believe. And at the building up of the church, the purpose of our gathering is not just building up existing disciples in maturity, but also building up more people becoming disciples. That through everything they did, sung, said and prayed, that people would be convicted by their sin, turn to the Lord and be saved. That's Paul's hope for the Corinthian church. And of course, that's our hope for St. Bart's too. We of course pray, just as Paul instructs, that we continue to ask for good gifts, but not for our building up, but for the building up of Christ's church. That the measure of our gifts would not be our own spiritual delight, but for the fostering of understanding, participation and belief. Let's pray. Gracious God, we just thank you so much for the extraordinary gifts that you have poured out on us for your good purposes. Lord, we are sorry for the times in which we use those gifts, not for the building up of your church, but for our own delight. Lord, we pray that as a people, that when we gather, that you might be so clearly glorified. Lord, we continue to pray and ask for gifts that will be so helpful. Please pour out those gifts for the building up of your church. Please help us as we shape our gathered life together to do all that would be helpful in fostering understanding, participation and belief. Lord, I especially pray for anyone here today, anyone who longs that they would be gifted in a way that you would shape our longings, not according to our own personal preferences, but according to your purposes and the building up of your church here and far beyond. Lord, may everything that we pray, say, sing and do reflect your agenda and your agenda alone. In Jesus' name, amen.